It is so good to be here. You know, you think about something that maybe it comes together, maybe it doesn't, and then there's some postponement. And here we are. God's blessed us. I'm very, very thankful for the opportunity to share some things with you today about Jesus, and I'm so glad that you're here for that and that we can get to know each other better. I have other pleasantries that I'd like to pass around, but I know this first session's kind of an on-the-clock thing, which I'll just tell you now I'm not super good at. So if I see the Bible class teachers doing the wave here at about, you know, in about 30 minutes, I'll quit and let you go teach the kids. But it would help if you would get your scriptures out and ready to go, and you would be in John chapter 20. If you're ready to read in John 20, then you're in a perfect position for us to get going. I will say this before we jump into the study of Scripture, that I am aware of the theme that your shepherds chose here over the past 12 months. The concept of looking for Jesus, of creating connections with Christ, His reality and His nearness. And you've spent this whole last year studying that. I was looking back through a lot of Sean's sermons. I listened to every single one of them, man, beginning to end. They were great. Uh, so Maybe that second thing wasn't quite as true, but I definitely went back and looked through... A lot of these lessons, and you know, he covered Jesus in the beginning and, and throughout the, the, the Gospels and the miracles and the prophecies and all the beautiful things about Christ. And I was thinking about everything we've all been through, no matter where you live, in the last 12 months. Could your elders have picked anything better to study over that period of time than the power and the presence of Jesus? You know, there are a lot of things you can study to help get you through all of what's going on politically and in health circles and all of it. But what you really need to know is that Jesus has always been here doing what he does best. Jesus is here right now in our midst supporting his people. He will always be in power and he will always be in control. He is above us sitting on the throne and, and he is in the hearts of every child of God. If that's not the kind of thing that we need to get us through challenges, then absolutely nothing can get us through challenges other than Jesus. So I find it a great pleasure today to get to carry that on. And I certainly hope that you are involved, each one of you, in some sort of daily Bible reading. Are, you day, are we daily Bible readers in Phoenix, Arizona? Are we? We all need to be in the Word because God wants you to see Jesus every day. And Jesus is in the Scriptures but not just the 27 in the New Testament. The argument that I wanna to make to you in the short time that we have here in this first session is that every book in this collection, all 66 of these letters, everything God has given from the first Holy Spirit inspired pen that touched the page to the last one is a Jesus story. This is a book of Christ. And everywhere you read in it, I mean, it's January. Who started in Genesis? We have any Genesis starters? I know where you're going to be when you get to Leviticus. I know that the reading program is going to fall into the refrigerator and, and you'll pick it up next year. But what I want you to see this year is maybe you read the entire Old Testament and you find Jesus everywhere that you go. I want you to see that today and get excited about it because Jesus is in every scripture and Jesus is to be in every life. Now, to help prove that, I didn't think you'd let me stand here and take you through all 66 letters. I practiced it at home. It was seven hours long. You would not enjoy that. So I'm going to do a little bit of a bookend study with you as we get started. Who was the last New Testament writer? Who was the guy who was the last man to take his hand with the Holy Spirit filling his will and put it on paper and write the message of God? I heard it 
It's the gospel and the books of the apostle John. John wrote the gospel of John. He wrote first, second, third John, and he wrote Revelation. He may have written them 20 or 30 years, potentially, after all of the other letters had been written. They already had all the letters about the church. They already had all the letters about baptism. They had all these doctrinal things about church organization. And so John, maybe close to 100 AD, says, the Spirit wants me to send one more message. Any guesses what that message was? What did the church need? They already knew how to organize themselves. They already knew what to do with the funds. They already, what did they need that may have been missing in the third decade of the church? Is your Bible open to John 20? He tells us precisely why he wrote the Gospel of John probably long after Matthew, Mark, and Luke had already been written and circulated. He said many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which were not written in this book, but these have been written. Why'd you write it, John? What does the church need? These have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. You say, John, why'd you write that? We already knew that. We have Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and Ephesians, and Colossians, and all these books. Why do we need it? He's, he's telling us the one thing that can never fall back, the one thing where there can never be even a crack in the wall, is the level to which you believe in the name of Jesus Christ, and you are assured that he promises eternal life in that name. And so he comes and he writes the Gospel of John. But what I would like to suggest to you is that this message, John 20, 30 and 31, as we are, and let me get familiar with this. Give me a minute to figure this out. What we are studying here, finding Jesus in Scripture, that verse that we just read does not just tell you what the Gospel of John is about. It is the thesis statement, the central theme of all five of John's books. He finishes with it in 1st, 2nd, 3rd John and Revelation. And before we're done here in a few minutes, I want you to believe that John 20, verses 30 and 31, believe in Jesus and life in his name is the theme of every book of your Bible beginning to end. When we find him and his hope in all that we read and do, our lives of faithfulness will become obvious and bright and beautiful. So let me start at the end with this. I, I just want to get to the as far away from the beginning as I can. What did John tell us about Jesus? Open your books to John 1. Let's just see about that. What I want you to see today is there are about six, seven, eight different things. I think I have it narrowed down to seven here. Seven things every Christian must know about Jesus. Seven things. And, and again, I want you to understand the import of this, that all these letters had already been written. And John said, I'm going to come back and make sure you've got these seven things. Because to the extent that you have them and you know them, you'll be fine. And to the extent that you forget them, you'll be doomed. Let me show them to you and I'll give them to you in chunks here. First of all, there'll be a lot of verses on the right. We won't get to read them all today. But I do have them referenced there for you. And we may actually print out some handouts. Here are two things. Number one and number two. Jesus is not just our presently ruling Savior. Jesus is eternal. Jesus has always existed before the foundations of the world. And I know you studied this last summer. Jesus was always here in everything that exists, your existence. The existence of everything you see and know came by the will and the love of Jesus the Christ. 
You serve not only a king, you serve the creator of all things. And John opens his letter in exactly that fashion. Let's read the first five verses and you'll see both of the points being made. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. That, by the way, is still true everywhere in the world. But the first two points that he makes is that he was in the beginning. We know from verse 14 and verse 17 that he's talking about Jesus here. He was in the beginning and he made all things. That's the way John opens his gospel. And so when you move to the book of Revelation, go with me to the first chapter of Revelation. And you know what's going on by then. You've got Christians persecuted. You have Christians being put to death. You have tribulation that surpasses anything we even can comprehend. And what's the message? The message is your Jesus has always been and will always be. And he made you and he made me and he made all of us. And so I'll just reference these really quickly. In, in Revelation 1 and verse 17, when I saw him, John says, I fell at his feet like a dead man and he placed his right hand on me saying, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. I was dead and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and of Hades. He is eternal. He lived before his death. He lived after his death. And you need to understand how that connects to you as well. When you go to chapter 3, I really like the wording here. In chapter 3 and verse 14, and it's a good time to tell you that I'm reading from the New American Standard Version, not the new 2021, but the 1995 update. So if you're reading from a different North, uh, North American Standard, uh, New American Standard, then it may come differently, but it actually may help you here. Look in Revelation 3.14. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God says this. I don't love that wording because it makes it look like Jesus was the first thing God made. A better word for beginning would be the origin or the source. Jesus is the source of the creation of God. He made all things. And you want to know what's even more amazing than that? That the God who has always existed and made all things decided to come and live in the flesh on earth under the limitations that you are now under. Go back with me to John, please, in chapter 1. The third thing he notes about Jesus is that this eternal God took on the flesh of men in verse 14. In John 1 and 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. You know, when John opens his first John letter, he says, we saw it. We touched it. I witnessed it with my own eyes that Jesus, the great creator, lived under the limitations of the body for some purpose. Philippians 2 explains that purpose to us. That he could submit himself to our position and even lower than our own position so that he might lift us up and save us all. Jesus lived in flesh. And the more you know, by the way, the more you know about his eternal power to create, the more in awe you are that he would ever live a single day under the limitations we are under. He came in flesh. Why did he come in flesh? What was the purpose of coming in the flesh? Just kind of see what life's like down here. Actually, a little bit of truth to that from Hebrews 4 about being sympathetic. 
but he came for the purpose of sacrificing his life for his creation. Think about that. In James, or let's go to John, in John chapter 1 and in verse 29, in John 1 and verse 29, same chapter that's introduced all of the points so far. Everything we've seen has come from John 1. And now in John 1 and verse 29, the next day he saw Jesus coming to him, John the Baptist did, and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Why is he calling him a lamb? What significance is that? Well, when you go to John 3 and 16, you know that significance. That Jesus came in flesh to take on a position of sacrifice that none of us have been called to make. Can you appreciate that? That none of us have been called to be the blood sacrifice lamb for even our own lives. And Jesus did it for everyone. In John 3, in verse 16, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And whoever believes in him shall not perish, but he have eternal life. When he said he gave him, verses 14 and 15, he, mean, he means he gave him to be lifted up on a cross to die. I'll save Revelation 5 for the end when you are going, quit, you're done, quit. I'll be reading Revelation 5 at that moment. But what I want you to note is he's very rarely pictured as a lion in Revelation. Occasionally he is, Revelation 5. And we know he's victorious. But John says, I don't want you to see him just as a lion. He far more often is referenced as what? A lamb. Can you get this? That he came to earth to die? And why? Because he knew that only through his death could victory be possible. Only by going through it can you get to the other side of it. I text that to my mom, by the way, yesterday. She's super COVID frightened. Is this online? She is super COVID scared. My family, we already did it. We're done, you know. And she's going through it and stuff, and she just wants to avoid it. And I said, Mom, look, you know, sometimes the only way to get to the other side of something is you got to barrel through it, you know. And maybe that's what happens for her, but that's certainly what happened with Jesus. When we get to John 20, he came here and he lived and he was mocked and abused and murdered. And the victory that he needed to attain over Satan, sin, and death meant he had to go through the trials of Satan face the temptations of sin and suffer death. And he did all of it to get to the victory on the other side. And so we'll go to 1 John 5, just to mix in a little 1 John in our study. I want you to see this is all of John's work. This is his emphasis. In 1 John chapter 5, for whatever is born of God, 1 John 5 and verse 4, overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. And here's the reason I had you read 1 John 5. For the first time in the list, you get to think about yourself a moment. Nothing so far has had anything to do with me except that my sin caused his sacrifice. Everything he's done so far is purely of his own nature and by it and contained in it. And yet when it comes to victory, things changed. When it comes to the, the establishment of a rule past death through sin, then he opened the door and said, now I want you to see the big picture here, that you can be victorious also, that I want you to victor over Satan's sin and death. And how will we be able to do it? And with what courage can we go by knowing that Jesus is also that ruling lion? Go to Revelation, please, in chapter one, that Jesus is currently established as ruler of all. So as you're looking at this list and you're moving to Revelation 1, I want you to see that in the intro I said that you need to remember that Jesus is before all things and he's here now and he'll be here forevermore. And those are the exact points that John was making. And so when you get to Revelation 1 and you look in verse 5 from Jesus Christ, Revelation 1, 5, 
the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. And he has made us to be a kingdom. Revelation one and verse six priest to his God and father to him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. I know Sean pretty well, good student, knows the book of Revelation pretty well, so he's probably shown you the secret decoder ring passage of the book of Revelation, and I'll show it to you now. Go to Revelation 17, 14. If you're ever in the book of Revelation, maybe you read it to finish up 2020, and you're like, I have no idea what's going on here. There's someone riding on a beast, there's a wilderness, there's a woman, I don't know, I have no idea. Join the club, firstly. Secondly, when you're as lost as you can be in the book of Revelation, you just find yourself right there in that passage, and you'll have everything you need to know. The message that John finished with for a suffering people, the message with which he finished is this. These, whoever these might be, these will wage war against the Lamb, and the Lamb will overcome them, because he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those who are with him are the called and the chosen and the faithful. What a great finishing message of the word. But you know, what I find more interesting than the fact that John finished the Holy Spirit's revelation with these seven things is that he's only finishing what had begun many, many years before. You guys gave the right answer a few minutes ago. Who was the author of the last letters of the, the Bible? You're right, it was John. Well, let me go this way a little bit. Who would you say was the author of the very, very first letters of Scripture? Who would that be? This guy named Moses, right? Moses wrote, uh, boy, so many years before that, 15, 1600 years before, and Moses wrote Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And many of you are embarking upon that as your, your Bible reading for the year, and I hope that by the time we're done this morning that you can't wait to get into the Pentateuch afresh, anew, maybe for the very first time, because now you're looking for the right person. And the more you see him, the more you will love seeing him in the scripture. Because when we go all the way back to Moses in Genesis, you guys have any idea what we're going to find there? Go back with me to Genesis chapter 1. I actually want to reveal to you that this seven-point sermon, preachers have a few of those, the seven-point sermon you see here, I did not build from a reading of the Gospel of John, though all of them were in the Gospel of John. The seven observations you see here were not built from a recent reading of Revelation, though, as you saw, they permeate the last letter of Revelation. All seven of these things came from an early start in 2020, late 2020, into the reading of the book of Genesis. Are you in your scripture in Genesis chapter 1? Did you know that it was in the very beginning of all creation that we learn that Jesus was present for that event. Just as John said in John 1, that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word breathed things into life. When we go back to Genesis chapter 1, we see God working in the first three verses. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But when we look in verse 26, we learn something, that God is more than just the Father. In Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and so forth. He's not talking to the angels. The angels can't make anything in their image. He's talking to Jesus. Jesus, Genesis 1, 26 is the first evidence 
that not only God the Father, but God the Son and the Spirit were all a part of what was made because they are eternal in nature. By the way, you, you can see it as well in Genesis 11. This is the second time in the text where we have a reference to us instead of just one. In Genesis chapter 11, when they were going to confuse the language at the Tower of Babel, it says in verse 7, Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they will not understand one another's speech. The point here is they did it together, God the Father and the Son and the Spirit. And so the next time you're reading in Genesis, and maybe you're doing that now, and you're just going through Genesis 1 and 2, and you see that God made light on day 1, and it was good. It was good to Jesus when Jesus made light. When you see that God made the upper and the lower and the plants and the stars, that was good to Jesus because your king made the stars. What a study, the stars. 56 billion light years across, created by the word of the one in whose name we pray. How could we ever lose courage when we pray in the name of the one who breathed into life the expanse of the universe? Jesus is not some creation of God to rule over the people. He is God. And go with me to Genesis 3, Genesis chapter 3. It's not very long before you start seeing more things about Jesus, not just that he was with God and made all things, but notice the three that you see next here. Where is the first place in the Bible you would go to learn that Jesus would come and live in the flesh? He would sacrifice under the pains of the devil's work, but he would ultimately be victorious over the devil. You say, where's the first place you would go? You may be like, well, Matthew or Acts. No, Genesis chapter three and verse 15. I want you to notice this with me. In Genesis chapter three and verse 15, we're still in the garden. It's the very first days of mankind. And because of the sins of man, Jesus is introduced as the savior. I'll tell you this, this is why Jesus is in every letter of the Bible. I don't care if you're in Hosea or Habakkuk or where you are. Where there is sin and any level of hope tagged on to the end of that paragraph, it's Jesus. And the hope that comes through that which he could provide. In Genesis 3, here's what God told the devil. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. Now notice the verse references here. It says to the devil, someone's going to fight you, but not some angelic being, someone who is the seed of woman. You go to Galatians 4, and it is noted specifically that Jesus came born of a woman born under the law of Moses, and he carried out the redemption plan. It was God's plan from Genesis 3 that Jesus would be born. And it says in Genesis 3, 15, that he shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. I think crush is a better word here. You can study it on your own. I mean, there's some crushing going on. There's a crushed heel and a crushed head. But you know, you can survive a crushed heel. You cannot survive a crushed head. The message here is very simple, that Jesus would be crushed on the heel by Satan. He would be damaged and hurt. And wasn't he on the cross? You think, well, no, that's a crushed head. He died. Not for long, he did not die. It turned out to be nothing but a, but a strike to the heel by the devil. But the message is, though you will crush his heel, he will walk up to you and he will crush your dominance forever. Did you know that the first promise of a resurrected and ruling Jesus comes in the Garden of Eden? 
It is God's message about Christ that's in every letter and the victory that he would have there. And by the way, there are other lessons about this sacrifice and victory. Go to Genesis 22. You're going to see this a lot more in the second session. But in Genesis 22, I want you to begin to see that Jesus is shown to us in three different ways. And I'm going to reserve the slide and I'll talk to you about it in the second session. When you're reading through the Old Testament, Jesus is revealed to you in three ways. Way number one, there are three P words, maybe, you know, you know, preachers and alliterations and stuff. Presence. Maybe he's just there. Let us make man in our image. He's just there. So if you're looking for Jesus in Genesis 1, you found him. He's there. The second one is prophecy. And that's what Genesis 3 is. Genesis 3 is, there will come this one, this one born of a woman, this one who will die but will be raised again. There is presence, there is prophecy, and there are what we call precursors. And what we mean by that is someone or something, they don't know it most of the time, but they're actually pointing to his coming. They're a shadow, a representation of the fullness that is to come. And one of the first ones that we see, not the biggest one in Genesis, stay tuned for a little while, but maybe the most impressive one is Genesis 22. It says in verse 1, Now it came about after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take now your son, your only son. I mean, like, did you, do you think John 3.16 when you read that? Because you should. Take now your son, your only son, whom you love. Isaac, and we know what he was told to do. He was told to take Isaac up on the mountain and to sacrifice him in a way that brought pleasure to the plan of God. And the beauty of that story is we're like, we're like Abraham and that we need to have the faith to lift the blade, but Abraham did not actually have to offer his son. He only had to demonstrate enough faith to offer his son. And then God provides this ram in the, in the thicket and the ram is sacrificed in his place. Let me tell you a little bit about God and the sacrifice that he was willing to make. There is no ram for God. There was no replacement. It wasn't that God just had to almost offer Jesus and then something else would fit in its place. There was no replacement. And this is a story about God's love for us and God's offering of his only son whom he loved can't read these stories without seeing Jesus. And if you do, you need to read them again. Their purpose is something else and something more. And then let me finish with this in Genesis 49. Genesis 49. This one's a little less known. I would say that most people are aware that Jesus is in the creation account. Most of us were taught that in Genesis 3, that Jesus would come. In Genesis 12, that in his seed, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Genesis 12 and 3. And that that blessing would come through his sacrifice. But I need you to see Genesis 49. Genesis 49, I think, is so interesting. It's the very end of, of course, the Genesis account. And these blessings are being given out to the sons. And then comes Judah. Now, Judah ought to ring a bell for you. Judah is the tribe through which Jesus came. David came through Judah. Jesus came through Judah. The great promises of 2 Samuel 7 were for the people of Judah. And here is what Judah was told. Let me begin in verse 8. Judah. Your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down to you. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He couches, he lies down as a lion, and as a lion, who dares rouse him up? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes. It's like the seed, the anointed one. And to him shall be the obedience 
of the peoples. I don't know if you mark in your Bible. If you're not comfortable, get you a pencil. So you can always go back and erase it. And just write Jesus about as big as you possibly can in your margin right there and just circle all of that. The message of Judah was that they would rule, but ultimately Shiloh would come, and not only would the people of Judah rule or, or serve under him, but everyone from everywhere, that's you and me, that's Texas and Arizona, would serve under his feet. By the way, and I know, I know, I know, great sermon, Max Dawson, man. Sean and I love Max. We love Max to death. Max is my favorite sermon Max ever preached is when he noted seven things in verses 8, 9, and 10 right here. A little challenge for you at home. He noted seven things that were prophesied through Judah in verses 8, 9, and 10 and connected all seven of them to Christ in the book of Revelation. The beginning and the end. It's never changed. If there's any part of our life, our study, our mission, I'm okay, I'm going to start this now. Tomorrow night it will really heat up kind of disappointed a little bit in the way brethren have behaved in, you know, maybe the last year or forever. But the point is this, we get so distracted, right? We got these missions, you know, we're fighting for things and justice and what If you're not fighting for Jesus, then stop fighting. If you're not fighting for the enduring power of the eternal creator, incarnate, sacrifice, victorious ruler of all, what are you fighting for? Well, in the name of God. What do you mean in the name of God? I got 66 letters here, and they're only about one thing. They're about the victory of Jesus, ultimate or eternal. All right, go to Revelation 5. I told you we were going to do it. If you guys want to sneak out the back, don't. I'm using Revelation 5 as a finishing passage here. What I want you to note is there is an actual draw in Revelation 5 from Genesis 49. So we're finishing the lesson by really connecting the beginning of prophecy to the end of the prophecy. And you're going to see this, but let me just begin in verse one. I promise you when I get done reading that I will quit some, at some point after I get done reading. I just want to read this with you. And here's what I want to say, because I will close with this. When I'm reading this, at any point in your day, under any stress in your life, under any level of sickness or sorrow or even the good things, at any point in your life, you ought to be able to close your eyes and see the Christ. I don't know what that looks like to you, but I have a suggestion for you to read Revelation 5 enough times that when you close your eyes, no matter what your future holds, what you can or cannot see, you can see that lamb breaking open the seals of the book of the future. Because he and he alone knows what is coming. And he and he alone controls what is coming. You don't. He does. Pick up with me. Revelation 5, I saw on the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written inside and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who's worthy to open the book and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open that book or to look into it. Then I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, Genesis 49, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book in its seven seals. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. 
And he came and he took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to God, and they will reign upon the earth. Preach, angels. Preach, elders. They're preaching the gospel in heaven. The same truths. Who knows what's coming? Who can handle it? Who can control it? Who can open the book to the judgments? Only Jesus. All right, you tempted me. I'm going to keep reading. Let's finish the chapter. Then I looked and I heard the voices of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the numbers of them were myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing and every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them I heard saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever and the four living creatures kept saying amen and the elders fell down and worshiped you ready to do that are you ready to fall down and worship at the one who has been the message from the beginning and who and who is the message of victory for your life. If you can close your eyes and see this, then do it often. And if something's in the way and you cannot, lay that before the Lord and let Him free you as we stand together and sing.